Are you ready to make 2017 the year you transform your life? You can wait for something to happen or you're actually going to decide to go, go home after this weekend to do something about that. We all know that we have a very, very limited amount of time on this earth. So let's not have repeated years. Live your own life. Make the choice, make the decision for your own life. Fear is where you develop courage. There's a moment going, holy crap, all right, I'm gonna do this now. The wellness breakthrough is coming. And so you actually have that choice every single morning, every single day, every single moment to decide whether you're gonna live it to the fullest or not. Join myself, Marcus Pierce, and the wellness guys, Damien Christoph, Lawrence Tam, and Brett Hill for two nights and three days of transformation at the country place. 10 acres of breathtaking rainforest in the Dandenong Ranges of Victoria, February 17 to 19. It's each and every single one of you are gonna support each other in your journey, whatever that journey is. Couples discounts available, limited spots remaining for all information and to watch the spine chilling video, go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your life. We've always taken mums the word to mean keeping things to ourselves. Well, this is no longer the case as we provide mums with the natural, honest, and reliable resources they need from experts and other mums to keep their families happy, healthy, and safe. Be prepared to use your passion for parenting to empower yourself with the knowledge of choice. Welcome to Mums the Word with your host, mum and chiropractor, Kaz Jaff. Thanks for tuning in again. It's Kaz Jaff here. Uh, we are on number three of our Best Of series of the Mums the Word podcast episodes, uh, the first year anyway. And um, there wouldn't be a mum out there who wouldn't find this information relevant. In fact, I think we've all been there where we were unsure of when our baby was ready to start and when should we introduce first foods uh, to our kids. Um, and also what are some clear signs that they might be ready. And uh, this is just one part of the episode that we're going to discuss with Mandy. She is um, a wealth of knowledge and super, super passionate. She um, is a pediatric feeding specialist who practices in Sydney at a private practice at the Children's Clinic in Bondi Junction, where she assesses and treats babies and children with a range of feeding issues. Mandy graduated as a speech pathologist and audiologist from the University um, of Wintersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa in 2002, where she went on to then specialize as a pediatric feeding therapist at Manchester University in the UK. She set up a pediatric feeding department in Havering in the United Kingdom, treating babies and children with a range of feeding and swallowing difficulties. And she's also an accredited SOS therapist. So in practice, it comes up um, many times about um, an infant's uh, oral development, when we talk about baby led weaning and we talk about some of the mushy foods and the squeezy packs. And this is something that Mandy goes into a lot more depth in this episode. And I know you're going to find it super relevant uh, for you and your child. So um, because it was such a great episode, I'm sharing it again. So enjoy. So Mandy, welcome to the show. I am very excited to have you and uh, I have told the listeners a little bit about you. Um, it's been, it's been a, a little bit of time waiting to, get, to catch you, but uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on board. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and you as the mum and we'd just like to get to know you better. 
Absolutely. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me on here. So I'm Mandy. I'm from South Africa. I'm a mum of three little girls, eight, six, and three. Um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind journey with them, you know, learning how to actually be a mum. I think you read a million books and actually finding out what it's like to be a mum is very different when you're actually putting it into practice. Um, so I had the three of them. They were all born naturally, um, breastfed all of them. All of them had extremely bad reflux. First one was a really big learning curve. I think she cried for about four months until her reflux was diagnosed. Once um, she was on medication, things improved a lot from there. And then, yeah, followed on from the next two with reflux as well. And eventually they outgrew it. And, yeah, they're doing really well now. And, yeah, it's great having them. Great. Well, I didn't know any of that about, about your kids. So that's a whole other conversation that we could definitely have, and especially with <laughs> yeah. chiropractic. But like I said, that's another topic altogether. Um, but what I really want to know is, um, you know, what you're doing now and particularly, you know, uh, please share with the audience uh, what led you down the path and, and how things eventuated for you. Okay. So I initially qualified as a speech pathologist and audiologist in South Africa. And initially, my passion was actually working in adult neuro and head injury, working with swallowing with adult patients. And I absolutely loved what I was doing. And I started doing community service in South Africa where you're placed in a hospital. You don't actually have a choice where you're being placed and you don't have a choice what work you're working in. And I was placed in the pediatric and neonatal wards in Joburg Gen, which is a massive government hospital in Johannesburg. And pretty much... I was given babies who were born premature, HIV positive, pretty much anything, and told to deal with them. And if I didn't work with them, nobody else was going to be working with them. Oh, my God. It was pretty hectic um, because in uni, the first thing we were told is it's called pediatric dysphagia. Unless you're qualified, you don't touch the area because it's you can you can cause a lot of damage if you don't know what you're doing. And here I was throwing these tiny little babies with having no idea what to do. So pretty much it was initially was self-taught. I took out my books. I read. I asked as many questions as I could, found as many lectures that I could to ask questions. And that was a year of insane learning, which was absolutely amazing. We then moved to the UK and I had found my passion. There was no other area that I was going to work in besides pediatric dysphagia. So I got a job in Havering, which is out in Essex. And there was basically not much pediatric feeding offering there. There was there was no service there at all. So I started off a community um, pe- a pediatric feeding community service in Havering, which serviced part of one of the hospitals there, Old Church Hospital, as well as doing home visits with all the patients over there. And once I looked into it further, I realized that there actually was postgraduate courses in Manchester. And I went off to Manchester and studied further in pediatric feeding and basically specialized in pediatric feeding. And basically since then, I've been attending every course that I can do from the SOS, sensory oral sequential approach, to feeding, to the Woolbarger approach, which is very much sensory based as well or a motor type of therapies, neonatal therapy, basically anything on offer, I make a plan to get there. Um, I think my aim is just to offer my patients the best that they can get. You know, so almost, yeah, trying to, trying to answer, I mean, we're only human and you can only 
answer what you know, but I try and answer everything that I can with the knowledge that I have. So constantly trying to better myself. Yeah, yes. To You're, be there for my patients and for the baby children. You're clearly passionate about what you do. <laughs> um, I don't know where in the timeline the children actually were born, if that was, you know, I mean, obviously a mum of three and doing all that is, you know, I take my hat off to you just there. But, um, you know, being an expat mum, I've been there too. And, yeah. and with little ones and then studying, which I've also done, um, it's a big challenge. And uh, unless you've been in those yeah. shoes, you, you don't realise how much passion is required to, to make it work. So Absolutely, and, absolutely. And where in that story do you move to Australia? Because obviously listeners don't know where you are. You know, you're in Sydney. Um, yes, uh, yes, I'm in Sydney, I'm in the east of Sydney. So we we lived in London for two years and I fell pregnant. We we moved to Sydney. I was 32 weeks pregnant. Pretty much my husband's family had moved here and the decision was either to stay in the UK and have a baby there with no family support or to come to Australia and have a have a baby here where we've had my parents my husband's parents and family. So I arrived here 32 weeks pregnant and we had, uh, so all of our babies are Australian. Um, and initially I started off working when my, uh, when my eldest was probably 18 months, I got a job at Royal North Shore Hospital working in the pediatric and neonatal wards. And that was sort of starting off my work life in Australia. I worked there as a, I was doing a maternity cover, which then became a full-time that offered me a full-time position, the person um, resigned and I took over. And I continued working there until my third child was born, um, before she was born. So when my second baby was probably about two years old or 18 months, I started up, I realised that there was very much a need for sort of continued service because when it comes to the hospital, hospital staff have a major, major caseload. And one of the biggest sort of reports that I was getting from patients is that, you know, they were being seen, but they weren't getting as intensive therapy as they needed. Um, a lot of the time sort of questions weren't being asked. You you wouldn't always see the same therapist. And a lot of my patients had some difficulty with that. And it was always, always repeating their story and always repeating things that they were going through. And just realizing that sort of there was that need for for patients to have that one-on-one -on -one and that consistent relationship with somebody. And I was approached by um, a few of the doctors who opened up the children's clinic, which is basically it's a clinic in Bandar Junction in the eastern suburbs. And it's a pediatric sort of specialist clinic. And they it's pretty much a one-stop shop for children. And they approached me and asked if I'd like to come and consult out of their rooms. They said sort of pediatric feeding is an area which there's such high need. So I started off uh, probably when, as I say, when my middle daughter was about eight, which is probably a, around four and a half years ago, I started off at the children's clinic. Um, and it's just built up. There's, there's such a need. There's such a need for support. And there's such a need for sort of parents to have somebody to reach out to. And what's great is in the clinic it's very multidisciplinary so working with a lot of doctors working as a team approach which I think offering our, our patients the best service so once I had my third child and she was about a year old I decided rather to focus on sort of the children's clinic rather than breaking up my time and working part-time at the hospital and part-time at the children's clinic so that's where I am now is working there 
Sounds like they're very lucky to have you with all this expertise. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, I mean, obviously, pediatrics is a you know is a large group. Um, yeah. You know, from I mean, you mentioned a little bit of the neonatal. I mean, when we're talking feeding issues or feeding, let's say problems. I mean, we're yeah. talking even just from you know literally, obviously, breastfeeding stage. Um, you know, even earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So even earlier, when we talk about sort of neonatal, talking about premature babies, um, so babies. Yes. So they don't develop it. A lot of babies haven't developed a suck reflex by the time that they're born, when they're born very premature. So it's basically when we work in the neonatal wards, which you would do if you're working in a hospital, it's assessing babies, seeing whether they are safe to feed. We're talking about feeding orally. And deciding sort of how to increase their feeds, how much they can actually tolerate of their feeds, and if they are safe feeding, because we almost think you put a baby in a bottle in a baby's mouth and they just, or a breast in a baby's mouth and they just suck, swallow, breathe. And yes, the majority of babies do, but there is a huge sort of portion of babies that that don't have that instinct or they haven't developed that reflex yet. So, and, or they might have developed reflex, but they aren't well coordinated. So they'll suck and swallow and the milk will be going into their lungs and they'll be aspirating. So as a speech pathologist, our role is basically to assess if they are safe feeders and if they can actually sustain themselves orally or whether they need alternative feeding, be it, you know, nasogastric tubes or peg feed, feeding, whatever those sort of babies need. So we work with it. We, it. we sort of decide if they can feed early and then it's up to the medical team to decide what the alternative methods will be to feed them. Yeah, yeah. But that's not, I guess, what you're seeing on a daily basis now no. out of that sort of hospital setting. Yeah, so yeah. Let, let's just sort of talk about, because I want to be able to help mums out there who, you know, who might need your services and, and don't even know that there is someone out there to help them or that they even have an issue. What I guess, are the, you know, the signs and symptoms that they should be looking for? And maybe you could break it down to maybe a few age categories. Absolutely. Quickly see in practice. Okay, perfect. So what I see with the, the young, really young babies, so sort of from birth to around four months, is breast and bottle refusal. There could be multiple reasons for that. A, a big one, which is occurring more and more often, which is a lot of sort of research going into it, is reflux. It affects feeding in a huge way and you find a lot of fussiness, a lot of going on and off the breast of the bottle, taking minimal amounts, not taking their quota, all of those sort of behaviours. I see a, a, a huge portion of that. Um, the other thing is poor weight gain with those babies. So for some reason, they don't have an adequate suck. So looking at changing bottle teats, looking at what's happening with the breastfeeding, how are they doing with their latching, so any sort of issue when it comes to breast or bottle feeding, weight gain, t- um, tongue ties, any type of sort of abnormality. So there's quite a few undiagnosed submucous cleft, which is basically a cleft of the of the palate, but then there's skin that's grown over it. And a lot of the time that's sort of looked over pretty quickly. And once the baby's not gaining weight, as a speech pathologist, we really, really look into the oral cavity and what's going on. So quite a lot of those are diagnosed sort of later on. And as I said, latching, checking if those babies, again, with that, those older babies, they can be uncoordinated and they actually could be aspirating and that's why they're refusing their feeds to keep themselves safe. Yeah. So in sort of that birth to four months, that's mainly what I'm seeing. Then from around four months to about a year is the whole issue of starting solids, the sort of 
how to go about starting solids, you know, what is the right way to sort of avoid later fussy eating because there are ways to, you know, some children do have internal stuff going on where they are going to land up being difficult feeders, but the sort of the run of the mill child, there are ways to sort of reduce the incidence or reduce the chances of being a fussy eater. So looking at ways of starting solid, progressing them onto sort of age-appropriate types of food so that we're developing their oromotor skills, meaning that they're chewing, their tongue movements to be able to chew. And if sort of, so in that age group, what I'm finding is a lot of those babies, <coughs> there is sort of that oromotor skill delay where they haven't developed chewing and they can't manage age-appropriate textures. Now that's so some things um, that I've been really dying to ask you because I mean the supermarket even just coming back to Australia from home the supermarket is filled with these soft packs you know squished up I mean I mean I know we we give our babies mushed up food but it's just to the point that you know they're now holding their own packs for themselves and 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 I'm guilty of it too you know a mum on the run um you know and here they are squirting their own food into their mouth and and surely the texture is all the same at this point in time yeah you know absolutely this has to be something that you're seeing and and maybe you could explain a little bit of of the problems that that could lead to Absolutely. So it's a huge issue in terms of oromotor development and as well as sensory development. So we have a huge issue with it. First of all, the packet food, always the texture, as you said, the texture is always the same. If you buy apple, pear and cinnamon, the apple, pear and cinnamon will always taste the same. The texture will always be exactly the same because it's machine made. So basically it's teaching babies to always expect if they smell something, they expect the texture to be the same and they expect the taste to be the same, which in reality, food is never like that. You can eat a green apple today and it will taste completely different to a green apple tomorrow. And they're not actually developing their taste buds adequately because they're always getting the same tastes and the same types of textures. And then you're also getting the smooth. And as soon as there's any sort of lumps or bumps, they're gagging on those lumps or bumps because they they don't expect it and they don't expect it to be there. So we're finding that a lot of the mums are actually keeping babies on these smooth purees because they're taking it and mums are always worried about how much their kids are eating and that they're gaining weight adequately. So they're giving them these smooth purees, even though it's not sort of, it's sort of detrimental to, to their feeding in the long term. The other issue is one of the biggest things that we say is playing with your food is about learning to eat your food. So exploring your food is a way that babies learn to eat their food. If you think of a baby, they crawl along the floor They'll pick up a stone, they'll pick up leaves, they pick up everything else, and they'll feel it in their hands, feel that it's safe, and then put it into their mouth. And one of the biggest complaints that I get from the mums that I see is that my babies will pick up a bug from the floor and eat it, but they won't pick up food. But for them, food is coming from a pouch, and they've never had the opportunity to actually explore real food. All of a sudden, real food's put in front of them, and they're told, well, you can't play with your food. And they've never actually had that opportunity to stick their hand in a bowl and mush with the purees and mess it all over their face. And that's sensory exp- exploration and sensory sort of playing with food is all about learning to eat their food. So they sucking food out of these pouches they don't know what real food looks like they don't know what what color actually what color absolutely absolutely and it's they start identifying food by the packaging rather than what food actually is so they're missing out on that whole opportunity to actually explore food even if you think of sort of it doesn't have to be necessarily a homemade puree as as you said you a mum and i'm a mum and we've all relied on those purees which 
is fine. But as long as they're having a combination of those purees from the pouches, putting it into a bowl, giving them a spoon so that they can mess with it and they can explore it, as well as having foods on a combination, not just relying on them. And the other thing is those pouches are very low in calories. So a lot of mums are so focused on how much their babies are eating. But realistically, a baby is going to be getting more calories from an apple that's been pureed down compared to a pouch of that apple, pear and cinnamon, which has got a minimal amount of calories in it. Oh, that's a good point. So, so I mean, what is really, I guess, in your work classified as fussy eating? Because I'm sure every mother thinks they've got a fussy eater. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Me included. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you do, there is normal fussy eating and all kids do go through a stage from around 12 to 18 months to about three years. There is a peak in what we call neophobia, which is a fear of new foods. And they generally aren't that keen to sort of venture out from foods that that they don't really know. What I would classify as a fussy eater is a child that has less than 20 types or 20 foods. So talking about, you know, um, a white bread would be one, say a crumpet would be another one, an apple is another one. So actually counting individual foods. If a child has less than 20 foods, they're considered a fussy eater. If they're restricting, if they're basically taking out an entire food group, so one of the biggest thing, one of the biggest complaints that I get, or one of the biggest reports that I get, is the the kids who are not eating any type of meat or any type of protein. You know, eat on white food diets and stuff like that. So it's excluding an entire food group from their diet. The other thing is that kids tend to food jag, meaning that they'll find something that they like. And I think we do it as adults as well. We'll find a food that we like and they'll eat it and they'll eat it and they'll eat it and eventually they'd rather starve than eat that food again. <laughs> in, a, in sort of a normal picky eater or in a normal, if you can call it a normal eater, they'll replace that food with something else. So they'll kick that food out of their diet, but they'll find something else to replace it with. With a true picky eater, they'll kick that food out of their diet, but they don't bring in a new food. So over time, their diet becomes more and more restricted. And do you tend to find that they will be related to a certain texture then? Definitely, definitely. So looking at color, color is a big thing. Picky eaters generally will stick to one color type of food and one sort of texture as well. So either going for the crunchy food Mm -hmm. or they might be going for sort of the soft, mushy types of foods. It depends on on often what the underlying cause of their fussy eating is, whether it's a sensory base and then you do find that they're going for bigger flavors and crunchier types of foods or they're going for very bland and very mushy types of foods. Where they don't have to chew at all, basically. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. And if it's and if it's an oromotor delay, meaning that they don't have adequate chewing, they are going to go for the easier to eat foods and foods that they can just suck to swallow rather than them having to chew it. Yeah, yeah. And what stage, I mean, are parents or, or should parents be bringing in a child like this? I mean, obviously 20, 20 foods, I mean, that's, that's a clear-cut, okay, you know, sign we need to do, take action, but... Um, are there, you know, typical ages that you see or is it the whole gamut? I, th- I think pretty much looking if we're going to put an age range on it, around 12 months if a baby isn't eating sort of what we would be eating as adults cut into smaller pieces, I would say that's a concern. So I'm seeing a lot of 12 months that are on purees 
And that's a major issue because they haven't developed those oral skills that they need, that chewing that they need. And there are critical periods for them to be developing chewing. And the longer you leave it, the harder it is for them to actually, before they would actually learn it. Once you leave it and it's late, they actually have to be taught how to chew. So around 12 months, if a baby's not eating finger foods and basically is relying more on purees than finger foods, that is an issue. The other thing is, I think as mums, we we have a gut instinct with what's going on with our child. So I think if you're concerned, there's no harm in having it checked out. You know, a lot of the times I've had mums come in saying, well, I wish I came to see you six months ago, but I went to my GP to ask to come and see you. And my GP said, oh, what are you worrying about? Your child's weight is absolutely fine. They'll outgrow it. But at the end of the day, when we know as mothers that something is going wrong, uh, sort of my advice is rather have it, have it checked out and ruled out because the earlier you deal with things, with everything, I mean, when it comes to speech, when it comes to speech, the earlier you deal with things, early intervention is key to sort of improving things and, and making the improvement sort of a much easier path. I absolutely so, agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. From a chiropractic point of view as well, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so definitely I think listening to, to your gut, that if you are concerned um, as I say, you know, pushing for, for them to be assessed. Um, and then if, you know, one of the big things is if there's any sort of stress around mealtime, so where there's mealtime behaviours, where the kids, where you're finding that your child, be it a 12-month-old baby or a five-year-old, that can't sit at a table with foods that they don't eat or have an absolute phobia of foods or a child who can't go sleep over at a friend or go to a birthday party because there's no food for them to eat, that's a major issue because it's going to cause more anxiety and then obviously it leads to social issues and further issues where that feeding can actually be dealt with, that fussy eating. And for them, the way I work with a lot of kids is systematic desensitization. So basically just neutralizing that food so it's not as scary for those kids so that they can actually deal with those social situations and stuff like that. So if sort of feeding is impacting on their life and if feeding is impacting on the parents' life as well, you know, feeding is a consistent stress and mealtime, I mean, mealtimes in general, I think for every parent is always, a, you know, there's always some stress involved. But if it's sort of every day is, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do about mealtimes, then it is definitely something worth having checked out. With so much great information provided on each episode, we've created an easy way for you to stay up to date on keeping your family happy, healthy and safe. For exclusive content, as well as show notes, links for everything we discuss on the episode, as well as a free newsletter to help keep you informed, visit mumsthewordpodcast.com. Some questions are coming up in my mind as you're speaking. When yeah. is the child that's, um, I guess, you know, I, I have two and, and I have to say my boy is a lot more interested in boob than, than yeah. food. So where does that come in where they say, well, I'm getting it from mum elsewhere. So I don't really need to eat. I mean, that's obviously an issue as well. That's a great question because one thing I, I think we don't realize is how clever our kids are mm-hmm. and how clever they are from very early on. So obviously something like breastfeeding or bottle eating, uh, feeding is a lot easier than actually eating food. So eating food takes a lot of muscles, takes a lot of control and takes a lot of sort of effort to be able to eat food. It's much easier to start breastfeeding or bottle feeding. So one of the biggest things is, you know, it does start changing around nine months. Food 
is more important than milk. So what we want to do is try and break it up. So if a child isn't eating an adequate amount at a mealtime, try not fall back onto breast or bottle feeding to fill them up because you're concerned because they're very going to quickly learn that, okay, well, I'll eat a minimal amount of my food because then I'm going to get the breast or the bottle and I'd rather fill myself up on that because it's a lot easier. So what we start doing, you know, from around six months, you need that food. So it it does start becoming important for them to be eating solids. And if they're just relying on that breast or bottle feeding, what we try and do is uh, space things further apart. So, you know, they'll have their milk and then they'll have a solid feed or they'll have their finger foods or whatever they're going to be having. But then if they don't eat an adequate amount of those solid foods, you wouldn't go and top them up with with milk or breast or something like that because you're concerned about their their calorie intake or how much they've actually sort of taken in. Because as I said, they very quickly learn to choose the breast and bottle over over finger food or eating solids the path of least resistance so yeah absolutely <laughs> um and and also what comes to mind of course while you're speaking is i mean you are a speech pathologist and so when most people hear speech pathology they think you know obviously speech or speech delay yeah or pronunciation now i can imagine if you're actually not able to move food around in your mouth and chew it that you're not actually able to form uh, proper sounds and and pronounce uh, pronounce Absol- words correctly there has to be a link as well Absolutely, absolutely. So, I mean, the reason why speech pathologists do pediatric feeding is in, well, in South Africa, and as far as I know, Australia is the same. We do head and neck anatomy. So we do sort of um, dissection and everything of the head and neck. And we have an understanding of all the muscles and basically the muscles of mastication or the muscles of chewing and swallowing are a lot of the same muscles that are used for speech. So our understanding goes down to sort of what muscles are moving, what what muscles, where there's a weakness and what sort of things it's going to affect. And obviously when looking at a child's chewing or swallowing, we can see, you know, what muscles aren't working adequately. And then as you said, if there is sort of that oromotor delay and there isn't, they're having difficulty moving their tongue around their mouth, it can impact on speech sound production and, and all of that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yes, they do head and neck here, and uh, you've made me have yeah. tools of my my days in the anatomy, <laughs> in the anatomy lab. So thanks for taking me back there. But um, <laughs> no, thanks actually. But the, um, the other thing that gets thrown around a lot, I know, obviously, um, when when mine were very little, and it's still, I guess, maybe hype or hip, is the BLW yeah. baby led weaning. Maybe you could tell some of the listeners who don't even know what that is, um, you know, yeah. what it is, and and what's recommended in in your work. Um, for, okay. for, for children starting out on, on food and, and being weaned. Perfect. So BLW or baby-led weaning, it started in the UK and the whole idea is that children should be offered food in its whole form. So in other words, there is no introduction of purees and there's no spoon feeding. It's basically finger foods are given to babies and the whole idea is that they have a grasp but they don't have a release. So if you're giving babies big pieces of of food to be able to pick up and sort of bring to their mouth and chew, the bits that are left in their hand that could be a choking hazard, they can't release into their mouth. So that's the whole idea is that it is actually safe for them because they can pick it up, but they can't release those small pieces into their mouth. He also basically says and that the child needs to be developmentally ready. So they have to be able to grasp food and they have to be able to be sitting up adequately for them to be able to do that. There's definitely a place for finger foods. And I definitely, I recommend sort of all the the kids, the babies that I'm seeing to start finger foods around six months. 
for oral skill development. The issue does come in, obviously, is for the, child, for the child that is slightly delayed developmentally. They obviously are going to be hitting those milestones slightly later. We're then looking at that they have had this development of different types of solid foods, puree foods, and sort of all the research that's coming out now as well is with early introduction of solids to decrease the incidence of allergies. So if we're looking at a child that's slightly developmentally delayed, even if it's four weeks, we're looking at only starting them on solids, according to baby-led weaning, at around, say, seven months, which is pretty late in terms of taste development and sort of allergy prevention or reducing allergies. So as I say, there's definitely a place for it, and I'm very pro-baby-led weaning. But what I recommend is starting solids purees, around between four and six months. The, I mean, generally, obviously, we have to look at the child. The NHMRC still recommends in Australia starting solids basically at six months or just before six months. But what we're finding as speech pathologists is that little bit earlier and all the allergy research is coming out, starting solids slightly earlier is reducing the incidence of, of allergies. It's also giving them that taste exposure and basically teaching them how to move their tongues in, in different ways. And then obviously working with developmental levels. So generally what I recommend is starting with solid, with um, purees and then introducing finger foods as well so that they're getting a combination and they're working on their oral skills at the same time with both types of foods. And then maybe you could just say a little bit about the gag reflex. Yeah. <laughs> the gag response, because I know that's one of the biggest uh, fears for parents starting with, yeah. the, with the BLW is just the fact that, you know, they're not going to end up you know holding their baby upside down and whacking them. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the, the first things I go through with parents is a gag is not a choke. Gagging, when we work with, with newborn babies, the first thing we actually do is we have a gag. We would never, ever feed a baby who doesn't have a gag reflex. Because basically what it does is if something hits the back of a baby's throat, it immediately closes off their airway to protect their airway from the food going down into their airway. So as I say, from a newborn baby, they have a gag reflex. But what happens is it's more anterior or it's closer to the front of their mouth when a baby's born. And as they develop and as they get bigger, their gag reflex moves further back. One of the biggest problems is with babies who have been left on purees for too long or babies who have had reflux or sort of negative sort of experiences around their mouth and associated with eating, they do get a hypersensitive gag, meaning that the gag comes closer to the front of their mouth and anything that touches that anything that's going in their mouth, they will gag. But as you say, that's not choking. And one of the ways to reduce or sort of normalize a gag which as adults, we all have a gag and how to normalize it and push it back is basically using finger foods. So, so basically if, keep stimulating like any pretty other much. reflex if you want it to be inhibited, you just... Uh, That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. So we, we, don't want to re- we don't want to inhibit it, but we want to normalize it, okay. meaning that we want to move it further back in, in our mouth because okay. as I say, even as adults, we need to have a gag as, as something yeah. that protects yeah, our, our airway. Different primitive reflexes. Then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. 
I mean, yeah, there's just there's so much information here. And, um, you know, what are some of the big tips that you would say to avoid the fussy eating? Obviously, you said mix it up a little. Um, but, you know, obviously the mum who's sitting there going, oh, I've got a baby in my belly or we're about to start soon. You know, I've got a you know three-month-old, four-month-old. You know, what are some of the big tips that you advise clients yeah. um, or patients to, to introduce or not introduce or, yeah? Yeah, so I think one of the, the first things is it needs to be fun. I think, you know, as mums, it it can be such a scary stage starting solids and it's something so sort of daunting, but you've got to look at it that your child's picking up on those stresses and you've just got to enjoy it and go with it. That's one of the biggest things is if, if you're stressed, your baby's going to be stressed. The other thing is if your baby doesn't like something, give it to them again. They don't have definite likes. They don't have the neurological pathways set down for different tastes. So if you give them avocado today and they spit it out and they gag and they they seem like they don't like it, offer it three days later and then offer it three days later again. And basically over time, they do learn to acquire different types of tastes. They do say that it can take up to 14 times to acquire a like for a new food. So it's important, you know, so many times I see babies and the mums have said, oh, well, they hate this food and they've given it to them once or twice. Just keep reintroducing it and keep giving it to them. The other thing is trying in in the other way, if you find that there's a food that your baby does like, don't give it to them every day or, you know, give it to them every third day again so that they don't get stuck on that food and start refusing any other type of food. And just exposure, exposure is key. And, you know, one day giving them carrots that are cut in battens, steamed carrots cut in battens, the next day give it to them carrots in rounds, you know, exposing them to different colors, to different flavors, to different smells, because we all do have our preferences and it's, they need to be exposed to different things so that they can see what is around and try different things. Yeah, because that, you know, really in real life, they're going to find it in different ways anyway. But that is that is that is such great advice. I mean, already just there, those little, um, you know, golden pieces of information. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, like I ask every guest, if there's a um, a quote or an affirmation or something that has helped you and its meaning, and how do you apply it so that other mums can learn from you? Yeah. So um, I think one of the the big things that I, I learned was from the SOS and Kay Toomey, who runs the SOS program, she said that eating is something that a child needs to do. It's not something that should be done to a child. Meaning that, you know, which is another thing that comes from Ellen Satter, who's a, who's actually a dietitian. She She's written some amazing stuff. Her whole thing, which, which ties in all together, her whole thing is that as parents, our role is to decide when our child's going to be eating what's going to be provided and where our child's going to be eating. And for our child and our baby, it's their decision to decide what they're going to be eating and how much they're going to be eating, which all ties in with the SOS as well and with with Ellen Satter, meaning that kids have an internal drive to eat. If they're not eating, it's not for us as parents to go and force them and to try and get food into them any way possible. If they aren't eating, there's a reason why they're not eating. No human being actually chooses to be hungry or chooses not to eat. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's... Internally, I lost you there a little bit, but in my... The video cam, I think, but in my experience, I've seen that they can go on a little while with on a little bit of air. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's something I've found that other parents have agreed with me that that whole year, I don't know how they grew, but they grew and they hardly ate anything. It's, we don't actually need that much, it seems. Well, it's, it's also important to remember that kids eat almost as a roller coaster, babies and children. So they'll eat sort of one meal really good, the next meal not great, the next one terribly. And it's pretty much when I ask sort of when the kids come and see me, the parents bring in a, a three-day food plan. And one day can be good, the next day not great, the next day absolutely terrible. And that's the way that they do eat. So kids do have ups and downs. Within days and within weeks, they have ups and downs. And that should be expected. And, you know, when they are having a down day, trying as much as possible not to put that pressure and sort of forcing them to eat because a lot of the time it's very counterproductive. Yeah, it can backfire. So, yeah. I mean, this podcast, Mum's the Word, is really about sharing the secrets that people used to hold for themselves and say, Mum's the Word, keep it to yourself. Yeah. This is all about us being in community around the globe. We have the same, you know, desires and struggles and worries and concerns and we're really not that different. You know, on, yeah. on this topic, I, um, you know, because we're not, on this topic I always ask the, listen, uh, the guests as well maybe to share so that we can learn from you as well not just the highs but maybe where something was a little bit challenging for you whether personally or or even professionally in your work with um with uh, with babies and and children and and what did you learn just so that we don't have to reinvent that wheel yeah um i mean i think personally um the hard things are living away from family, um, you know, not having my mum around and stuff like that, which it's it's very hard to deal with. It's, you know, sort of living, yeah, without your mum is, is pretty hard. Thank God she's, she's here, but she's far away. Um, I think professionally, I think, I think the hard thing is I'm only human and I am always trying to sort of give the best advice to my patients. But I think, in, you know, sometimes I look back and I think, oh, you know, should I have done that? And there's always, you know, I'm constantly thinking and constantly analyzing what I've done and what I've advised and stuff like that. And, you know, sometimes when I first started off, like I think it has been a huge learning thing where I've given advice and I think, oh, my gosh, like looking back now, I should never have done it. But, you know, as you say, we're all human and, yeah, just trying to, to learn. And I think it's forced me to read and research and just keep up to date with absolutely everything to make sure that I am offering the best and trying to avoid what I did do when I first sort of qualified. I mean, thank you for that honesty. I mean, that is just, I think we all have that. I mean, I, I you know, of course it all comes with experience and I mean, we call it being in practice for a reason. So, yeah. you know, you graduate and it's all theory and, and, and then suddenly you have a child and, you know, it's, um, of course, time, time helps. You know? Absolutely. 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 And to come from the good space and the right intent and, and don't do anything dangerous, as you said. Uh, that's exactly it. Yeah. Keep yeah. in with what, what you know. And if you don't know, rather say you don't know, then, then try and deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you share if you could go back in time to tell either yourself, the pregnant, the pregnant mum, or with the newborn, or even just those mums listening, what would you share with them about, about maybe as it relates to feeding, but even just as a parent uh, and parenting experience, what would you share? I think, the, I think the biggest thing is just to enjoy every second. You know, each each stage has its trials, but each stage has its joys. And it's just, you know, you look back and it goes so fast and you just you want to go back and capture those memories. And, yes, there's stressful situations, but you almost just want to take it all in, the good, the bad, the ugly um, it's so you know, cliche, but it's so true. It, but it is so true. It is so true. Yeah. And it's, 
yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the biggest thing. You know, when you are going through those difficult times, which, as I say, with my first, I, I went through a really, really rough time with her. But looking back, it was her, and it, it probably has shaped the person that she is today and and stuff like that. I think just taking it all in and just, yeah. 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 And, and, and as I said before, you know, as a mother, I think you know your child, and I think we all have a gut instinct when we know something's not right. And I think you've got to search for answers if you're not if you think that there's something isn't right. Yeah. Well, you just answered my next question: is what's the best advice you ever received? And I think yeah. uh, listen to your gut and uh, absolutely is, uh, is 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 um got to take top priority there. Maybe you've got some um, resources or um you know invaluable things, books or websites to share with listeners to find out more about this kind of work. Yeah. So um, there's actually a new website that's been, it, it has been internationally previously and they're just launching it or it's just been launched in South Africa, in South Africa, sorry, in Sydney, uh, in Australia. That's okay. <laughs> it's late. You've got three kids. It's no problem. <laughs> We're going to all laugh. It's fine. So it's, it's the mummy, it's the mummy language. It's called um, Life. <laughs> absolutely absolutely um so it's called feeding matters and it, it basically it's a sort of a support website it's got a lot of links with regards to feeding different issues around feeding and yeah i mean it's it's really really good it's a sort of a support line for parents which is i mean a, an online support line for parents and for information okay, it's it's really great. really good and any books or anything that you've uh, found Yes, I mean, there's a book that's come out quite recently called Helping Your Child with Extreme Picky Eating. Uh, It's by a speech pathologist and a dietitian, as far as as I know. Um, The speech pathologist is Jenny McLachlan. And it's an application of SOS, which is sensorial sequential, as well as Ellen Satter's principles, um, where she talks about being competent eaters. And it, it com- combines the two, sort of how to work with sort of picky eaters. And it gives some really good advice for parents to be able to use. The other one is um, Sensational Meal Times, which is, she's actually Australian, um, Gillian Griff- Griffiths. She does she does a workshop as well, and it's it's really really a, a great resource and gives some really good advice. Well, that's 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 a lot. Great, and obviously, you know, how do I know that a speech pathologist? I mean, knows what you know, or know? I mean, is there an association, or is there something that is a seal of trust? So, I mean, we do, as a speech pathologist, to be able to practice, you have to be registered with Speech Pathology Australia. And they do have a website, um, which is spa, I think, uh, .com.au. And on there, you have all registered speech pathologists. Obviously, the thing is that in undergrad training, not everyone, you get the basics of feeding, you get the real basics. So... I mean, in terms of, I think people are pretty good referring on because people don't really dabble in feeding if they're unsure of what to actually do with feeding. Yeah. So I think generally, you know, if you, in, from experience, if you contact a speech pathologist and they're not really up to scratch with feeding, they generally do tend to refer on. Okay. Yeah. Good advice. So, okay. Well, that lends me to my next question, of course, before we say goodbye, how can we reach you and find out more about the work that you're doing? 
So I work at, as I said, the Children's Clinic in Bondi Junction, and I have a webpage, which is www.sydneyfeedingspecialist.com. Mm-hmm. I also have a Facebook page, which is Mandalay Adno Feeding, uh, Feeding Therapist. Um, yeah, or otherwise through the Children's Clinic, the, the email address there is www.thechildrenscliniccomau Okay, great. I mean, they're, they're, that's um, that's enough ways that we can catch you. So, uh, thank you, thank yeah. you so much for. Um, I mean, I I could actually go on speaking about this for a long time, and I think you could too, with all <laughs> yeah. your passion. And uh, you know, maybe that's something we can think about another topic together. But it's been an absolute pleasure. As I said, it's been a little bit tricky to catch uh, our schedules to to work and sync together. So, um, I'm I'm grateful to have you on here, and um, yeah, to be able to make sure that we share share this with the listeners as well so um absolutely well thanks so much for inviting me it's been great thank you okay all the best bye (laughs) thanks bye thank you for joining us on this episode of mums the word please remember to subscribe rate and review us on itunes and join us on our facebook page to help us share the message to more mums all over the world we look forward to having you join us again next time here on your trusted source for all mums everywhere mums the word This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.